Welcome to Stupsin. Stupsin is a series of Dharma talks by Anthony Osler, Dai Chong Osho, the guiding teacher at Poplar Grove Zendo in South Africa, and a former Zen monk. The talks draw from traditional Zen teachings and koans to make them relevant wherever we live and whatever life we lead. If you feel inspired by these teachings and would like to make an offering to support Stupsin, you can go to our website, stupsin.co.za, to find out how. So I, I really enjoy uh, reading about the early history of Buddhism in China. I think there's something slightly chaotic about it, which, I, which appeals to me enormously, something anarchistic, the sense of possibility. Uh, but I'll try to come back to that later if I remember. But what strikes me most is this extraordinarily um, fecund meeting of worldviews. And it's kind of astonishing in a way. Um, Buddhism came from India with a very particular worldview uh, as expressed in its teachings, uh, where it says that, that life is uh, unsatisfactory. Of course, they use the, the word suffering. Life is suffering, and it's marked by impermanence and various other characteristics that are connected with its suffering, and that our path is to, to, uh, to take that suffering and to work our way through it until the third of the noble truths, which is the absence of suffering. <clears throat> and, and that's the kind of structure, and within that worldview of a kind of karmic-driven, moralistic universe, Nirvana at the end is in some way seen as an escape from the endless cycles of birth and death. In other words, from life itself as we know it. The Taoist Chinese worldview was dramatically different. It said, uh, this life is is unproblematic, just as it is. They use the word perfect. Just as it is, this endlessly transforming, uh, non-dual uh, existence is, is our true home. And, and what's the problem? And there's no need to go and take 487 vows as a monk or nun and uh, embark on a path from suffering to non-suffering because the whole uh, assumption behind that is unnecessary. Life is fine as it is. We, we just got to uh, open our eyes and if, if we can lie underneath the trees and watch the light play in the leaves. And it, it's interesting because that feels like a very modern uh, 
worldview. It's inherently kind of empirical, scientific almost. Um, it's not based on any metaphysical assumptions or beliefs. It's, it's highly kind of evolutionary in its dynamism. And it, it, it's all about an endlessly transforming, endlessly interconnected whole. The all of this, the wholeness of this is the basic assumption of our life. And what's fascinating to me is how these two traditions intersect. And they intersect at a very particular point, uh, the point of, of self, identifying with self. So that, again, starting from the, the Taoist worldview, um, this life is inherently whole and unproblematic. The only time we cannot connect with this world as it is, is when we withdraw from it into what we now call the self, or the attachment self, the self-concerned self, the self that identifies with itself and its, uh, its concerns. And there's something in the structure of that that doesn't allow us to kind of see out. That somehow in, inside that vibrant functioning that we call self, we kind of become blind to, to the fundamental all rightness of all of this. And when we do that, we experience life as suffering, as, as isolated, uh, as, as somehow separate and, and fragmented an instinctive recognition that something is not right. And it's in that situation that we say life is suffering. And it's in that situation amidst all the other contentiousness and opinionness and argument and strife of our uh, self-lives, it's right in there that we hear a call to some kind of homecoming, some kind of non-suffering, some kind of wholeness that we intuit but can't quite hear. And the Buddhist contribution to Zen, if you like, you know, I'm drawing broad strokes here, is that it takes is that it 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 takes that suffering world of self and says, okay, this is this is real. Let's let's do our best here. Let's find the wisdom traditions in 
the spiritual path and see what happens. And in doing that, we begin to uh, intuit with more clarity how, uh, what possibilities there are in, in this world of moving beyond suffering. And how in that kind of uh, path, the membrane between this isolated self and the world that's fundamentally all right becomes sometimes very thin. And, and we can feel the light coming in from the outside, you know. we get invigorated by a sense of, of possibility and, and, uh, and excitement, really. Some instinctive, intuitive thing that we can't name necessarily, or hopefully we can't name, but, but which, we, which we smell out with the, the very, uh, all the tactile, components of our body are alert and awakened. And in this way, the broad structure of Zen, as we know it, um, fits together. But now the basic assumption is not a, a world that we need to escape, but a world that's fundamentally just as it is, and unproblematic. But that when we isolate and, and withdraw from the world, we need a spiritual, what we call a spiritual path, path to lead us from suffering into the end of suffering. And so the two fit together But the characteristic of the fundamental assumption uh, gives Zen its very particular style and tone. And what happens then is that the, the vocabulary begins to change, or even where it doesn't change, we use words in slightly different ways. And there's a, there's a famous koan about this. For those of you who like koan collections, Entangling Vines 170. Uh, I can't really read it now. It's a little dark here. But it basically says, the Buddha's way is through explanation, um, Bodhidharma, that's the archetypal Zen Buddhist, Bodhidharma's way is through doing. And the question then is essentially, which one is correct? Which is the right way? Which is the best way? And like many other koans of a similar kind, it, it, it sort of sucks in our desire to know which is right and which is wrong. Because after all, my head says to me, I want to be assured that I am on a sensible, sane, and helpful path uh, with cosmic approval somewhere. 
market manager. And when we're stuck in that kind of anxiety about which is right, you know, the traditional Buddhist way or this Buddhist way, um, yeah, then, then things get a bit tense. And, and we get anxious and, and we fall over ourselves and so on. But the moment we accept completely the fact that when life is suffering, we follow the traditional Buddhist path. And when life's just fine as it is, then we lie under the trees and follow the, the Taoist path of the earth. And there's fundamentally no problem at all. Even if from a certain perspective, they appear to be contradictory or pulling against each other. Ultimately, it's wonderful. And it, while we're doing this, we find that the characteristics of Zen, uh, even though we may take some traditional Buddhist uh, practices, uh, have a slightly different air about them. So we do our form in the Zendo, we do our bowing and chanting and all kind of traditional things. We do them as gestures of selflessness, uh, as guests in the presence of this moment, where we follow our situation regardless of uh, whether we like it or not. So in that, we, we are not... Uh, uh, encouraging the, the isolation self, but rather uh, just putting it down and doing what we're doing full-heartedly. And when we do our Zazen, our basic meditation practice, it follows in, in so many ways the tradition of jhana, sitting, dhyana, that uh, comes all the way from the early days of Buddhism and even before, I suspect. But that we don't sit in order to become enlightened. We don't sit in order to become Buddha. We sit as Buddha. We sit as this universe expressing itself right in this very moment. It happens to be a moment of sitting, still. But it's not an instrumentalist uh, gesture at all. It's a gesture of sitting in the middle of the life that we find and just being there being awake and alive in that moment. That's the kind of uh, way we look at, as, at our meditation. And even in that, when we, we can't get that and we're frustrated and uh, wishing our life could be a little different, 
then we adopt a more traditional uh, approach. All right, now count the breath. I'll just relax my body or whatever it may be. But the basic assumption is that we are sitting uh, as Buddha, as this universe in this very mind. And when we do our koan practice, similarly, the whole, uh, which doesn't, I should say, koan practice doesn't have a strong kind of antecedent in the Indian Buddhist tradition, but it does really in, uh, in the Taoist uh, backdrop to, to Zen. And koan work is really about us finding, again, to use Taoist language, our original nature of finding where we connect with this universe in all its transforming energy. And to do that, we have to put down the mind that tries to explain it, that tries to predict it, tries to control it, that tries to stick on the like side and not the dislike side, and to reassure itself that it's making progress somehow. The, the, the assumption behind koan is that you're given something which from the self's point of view looks puzzling or stupid. And from the self's perspective is puzzling and stupid. But at which if we are able to loosen that knottedness of self can suddenly appear can, can suddenly appear to be quite unproblematic and, and full of life. But as we do, if there's some kind of dispute going on at home and, uh, and everyone's muttering and suddenly somebody does something silly and breaks it open and then, or someone bursts into tears or whatever it may be, something changes. The problem doesn't get solved, but the perspective changes from which we look at it and the suffering disappears in a particular way. So, so these are the kind of, of symptoms, if you like, of the Taoist contribution to, to the Zen tradition. And maybe it goes some way to explaining the question people quite often have to me if they're encountering this, encountering this tradition for the first time. That, that well, what happened to the Four Noble Truths? What happened to suffering? And what happened to, to uh, end of suffering and, and the Eightfold Path? <laughs> that somehow uh, in this broader perspective, um, the Taoist uh, contribution to this tradition has made it, uh, has changed its character quite fundamentally in some ways. Uh, for me, quite excitedly, but uh, there you go. It's neither here nor there. <laughs> and one of the other contributions of the Taoist tradition, of course, is a very strong aesthetic so that the, the early 
writings like in the Tao Te Ching and the Book of Changes and the Chuang Tzu um, are highly lyrical, poetic, spiritual uh, utterances, full of space and, 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 and depth. And that this then moved also uh, into the Chinese language, the way things were described, particularly moving from like an India, Indian Buddhist language like Sanskrit, which the later um, writings were all in alphabetic language, into a language that's based on uh, pictographs and ideograms and where nouns and verbs and things and doings are, are interchangeable something very fluid there. And then the painting and style of drawing and cartooning came out of that, uh, all contributed to uh, this tradition as, as we know it. And then there's fundamentally no problem. Uh, this is of course the, the Zen <laughs> talk. Uh, there's fundamentally no problem uh, at all. Sometimes, sometimes the world looks very bleak to ourselves. Uh, we're going through enormous the dynamic changes at the moment with a lot of suffering and distress and anxiety about them and loneliness and, and despair. And when we sit in the midst of that, it's not a question of saying that doesn't exist because that exists as much as everything. And when we connect with the world with that kind of intimacy, when we put ourselves aside in that way so that we are available to the world, then we, we automatically have a wider perspective on things. We know that things are transforming and changing in multiple dimensions, in unthinkable complexity, and that we are simply part of that. And our time on this earth is a particular time, a particular moment in that. And having the wider view just releases some of the tension that accompanies our anxiety and our desire for things not to be uncomfortable and for things to change in the way we'd like them to change. It's a fundamental easing when we, to use traditional language, find our original nature find our Buddha nature using that language. And then a kind of a wisdom that comes from a view beyond self is, is perfectly natural. And when we are sitting in that wider, endlessly changing space, the sense of connectedness with everything is, is deep 
and strong. And when we see people suffering, when we see people in pain or discomfort or anxiety or loss, we respond with compassion. Not because that's the right thing to do or it makes us better or more spiritual, but because if we are part of this interconnected universe, whatever happens to you, happens to me. And intimacy and, and compassion and friendship uh, come naturally as part of the characteristics of blending completely with this kind of transforming wholeness that we're part of. And then, again, just to perhaps finish a thought I started earlier, Zazen, our meditation is, is not sort of concentration or tranquility meditation or in order to gain something. But I'll try and get the quote from Chuang Tzu wandering boundless and free in the selflessly changing universe. That's it. And then there's no distinction between our Zazen and our everyday life, which is again part of the Zen a kind of outlook, whether we're sitting on cushions or raking the garden or preparing a meal it's all one life. And what also uh, I find so fascinating about this very visible change and potential conflict that seems to have resolved itself in this tradition is that it, it kind of reminds me of my life here in South Africa, where when you look at things from some perspectives, it's difficult not to be discouraged. It looks like an, a, just a realm of endless con contestation and opinion and argument and struggle for influence and power. And from another perspective, it just feels like a vibrant, alive kind of place where, where possibility is endless and opportunity is endless. And if we can keep this perspective on our practice, that however difficult things will look sometimes, it's the place you're looking from that makes them difficult. It's your difficulty that you're seeing. And that there is always a, a perspective of selflessness where the impasse becomes an opportunity. Not because of some magical trick or some belief or some uh, just rewards for a lousy life. 
but simply because that's the nature of them. And then whatever changes are happening, we're part of, we steer them in whatever way we feel is appropriate, that's part of it. And we let go wherever it's appropriate. And in doing so, we are finding and embodying our original nature, we call our original, our fundamental phenomenological ontological, God, all these words, um, condition, evolutionary. Uh, and, and we take that, that life that we've given and we celebrate it, our Zen as a celebration of this life. And when we withdraw into ourselves and become anxious and we work from inside the, the blindfold of our attachment self, then we take up our practice and we do our best. But within this context of this great whole endlessly transforming uh, reality. So uh, I, I really, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share this morning with you and, and to be uh, considering these kinds of words. And if you've fallen asleep uh, half an hour ago, that's wonderful. You're probably the only person who understands them. And we just wish you all a wonderful holiday season, Christmas and New Year. Wish you health and and we wish you uh, moments of, of just feeling at one with this boundless, boundless world of which uh, we are inherently uh, a part. <laughs>